The title of my message for this evening is Hope Lost. And we'll be journeying with three individuals that are simply walking on a road together away from the events that had just occurred there in Jerusalem. And while they are on this road, they begin to talk and to think and to discuss what they had just witnessed. Again, the title of my message is Hope Lost. It has been said that you can live 40 days without food, about three days without water, eight minutes without air, but only one second without hope. I went out and I asked people this week what they felt hope was. I wanted to know from the man or the woman on the street and how they defined the word hope. Many of them simply summarized it as this, simply having an optimistic attitude towards the future. But in actuality, that is incomplete because it is simply wishful thinking to think that the future is going to be better than the past without something affecting the future and changing it from the hurts and the loss of the past. One wrote this way, Hope is an optimistic attitude of mind based on an exception of positive outcomes related to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. For hope to truly be hope, it must be based on something solid for it to withstand the storms of life. Today in psychology, one of the fastest growing areas of study is the study of hope on the individual. What does it mean for one to lose hope? It is a question that many are asking themselves today. Because we are faced with many in our society, in our culture, that are hopeless in life. And I don't mean that in a derogatory manner. I mean that hope is gone. Hope is lost. They have nothing more to assure their future. They don't know how they are going to continue and to continue moving forward. Scientists and doctors now tell us that hope is related to different triggers, meaning this, that when one moves to the position of hopelessness, it is triggered by some event, either one or multiple events, that take place within a person's life. They summarize nine of these triggers. They did so that other, so the other psychologists could understand and know and see the signs and the effects of one who is suffering from hopelessness. Number one was alienation. An alienated individual believes that they are somehow different. Moreover, they feel as if they have been cut loose, no longer deemed worthy of love, care, or support. In turn, the alienated tend to close themselves off, fearing the pain of rejection. But then there are the forsaken The word forsaken refers to an experience of total abandonment that leaves individuals feeling alone in their time of greatest need. Hopelessness can be triggered by being uninspired. Feeling uninspired can be more especially difficult for members of underprivileged minorities 
for whom opportunities for growth and positive role models within the group may be either lacking or undervalued completely. Number four, it was those who feel powerless. Individuals of every age need to believe that they can author the story of their life. Number five was oppression. Oppression involves the subjugation of a person or group. Number six, those who feel limited when the struggle for survival is combined with a sense of failed mastery, individuals feel limited and that has triggered hopelessness in their life. When individuals, number seven, feel doomed, weighed down by this form of despair, presume that there is, their, their personal life is over, that death is imminent. Those who feel captive, two forms of hopelessness can result from captivity. The first consists of physical or emotional captivity enforced by an individual or in group. And the last of the nine is helplessness. Helpless individuals no longer believe that they can live safely in this world. These were the nine triggers that led someone to hopelessness. But it was their conclusion. One of their Doctors concluded it this way, and I felt that this was interesting. Because it's one of the first times that I've seen secular psychologists acknowledge the need for something more. And it's found in this conclusion. We can overcome hopelessness by first recognizing which of these nine types we are confronting. For each form of hopelessness, they present a mind, body, and spiritual treatment involving restructuring of the thoughts, accessing the right kind of hope-sustaining relationships, and listen to this, specific spiritual practices. Armed with this prescription, we can summons, and listen to these words, the light back into our darkness. Interesting. Hopelessness. A recent article in the Chicago Tribune stated that now more than ever before, Americans are becoming more skeptical of the hope of a better tomorrow. In a recent poll taken, they found that more than 76 of people studied within this poll stated that their hope is fading and fading fast. As a result, more individuals than ever are struggling with depression and despair. Many doctors today have stated that depression and despair are symptoms of hopelessness. I read a recent article that troubled me dearly about young people and the rate of suicide amongst those between the ages of 10 and 14 have risen dramatically since the 1980s. And when they were asked why they were so despondent, the response was hopelessness. That is the mood of the suicidal youth of today. There is hopelessness. Today in our inner cities, we find the rate of hopelessness among those under 30 at epidemic proportions, especially in urban settings. It is shown through sarcastic indifference due to the lack of jobs, broken family, no future at all. And then recently, even people that you would never suspect are dealing with hopelessness. Angeli Jolie wrote this, or she said this to a reporter. I didn't really want to live, she said. So anything that was invested in my time made me angry. But I also felt sad. When the hopelessness is hurting you, she said, it is the fixtures and fittings that finish you off. Someone like her 
with the success, the fame, the notoriety, the money. You would think if anyone had hope, it would be someone like her. When individuals were asked what they placed their hope in, six things were revealed. The first being money. The second, relationships. Number three, our government. Academia. Science. Number five. And number six was themselves. Hey, I know all about hopelessness and disappointment. I've been a Cubs fan forever. (laughs) Trust me. I've been there. Wait till next year has been the motto of my sporting fandom. Many have placed their faith and hope in these things only to discover that they were not capable of supporting their weight. And when things really became trying, each one of those six let them down. For many Christians have placed their hope in these things also. They've placed their hope in money or in relationships or in the government or in academics or in science or even themselves only to discover that all of those were lacking. But those are the triggers. Tonight we are going to discover in our text together as we look at the Bible together that there are steps from that trigger to an actual hopeless state. There are six steps that we are going to see that are taken by the individuals that we are going to look at together. And often we take these same steps when we are faced with one of those triggers in our personal lives also. And it's those steps that I want to look at this evening. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, will you open them to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24? And if you don't have a Bible underneath your chair, there should be one. If there isn't, look in the chair in front of you. If there isn't one there, simply take your neighbors. It's okay. But as we look at the Word of God together, we join two men that are simply walking on a road to a village called Emmaus. And as they are walking, they are thinking and considering the events that have just taken place in Jerusalem. And while on this road, they are joined by a very, very special individual, who they at first did not recognize, specifically because he did not want to be recognized, but allowed them to continue their conversation. And in it, he discovers that they're sullen. It's a word we don't use very often in our vocabulary anymore. They are saddened to the point that their countenance has been changed. And if you fast forward with me, look at verse 21 with me. And in verse 21, listen to these words. But we hoped, past tense, that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, He was, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. But notice, past tense, we had hoped, and now they are in a place of sadness, as we will soon discover. Let's read our text first, and then we'll go back and look and walk with them and find these six steps that maybe we can avoid when we are confronted by a hopeless trigger. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, 
about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Let's pray together. Father, it is so important that we understand what you are saying here and showing us. Father, from time to time, all of us lose hope. And it's often in those moments that we are the most vulnerable. Father, help us to understand and to know that we can trust you and place our hope fully within you. And Father, let us avoid these things that these men will display and illustrate for us here in our text this evening. Father, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. What things, he asks of them. What, what things are you discussing concerning this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Let's back up for a little bit. Just for just a week earlier, one rode in on the bank of a donkey to the hails of the people, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he laid palm branches before the feet of the donkey in which he rode upon. Once arriving in Jerusalem, he then went to the temple and cleared out the money changers for the extortion that they were leveling against the people of Israel there in the temple prior to allowing one to worship the God of that temple. He was then betrayed by one of his own and arrested at night. He Tried, he was then tried by the religious leaders, Herod and Rome, and no fault could be found in him. The only accusation was his claim to be the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Christ. And he did not lie, for he was. He was then whipped and beaten. He was then brought before the people, and they cried out instead for a criminal to be released. He then was taken to carry a cross through the Via Della Rosa there in Jerusalem and walked to Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where he was crucified between two thieves. And at that moment, the skies grew dark. For three hours, darkness shrouded the entire area. And at the end of that time, he cried out these three words, It is finished, bowed his head, and released his spirit unto his father. And then on the third day, something had occurred. 
The tomb in which he had been laid was now found empty by women who went there to dress and to tend to the body. And the rumors begin to swell throughout Jerusalem, combating one another as one would say, he has risen from the dead. The religious leaders would say, his body has been stolen. And in the wake of all of this, these two men leave Jerusalem and begin their seven-mile journey to Emmaus. But as they are on this road, they are thinking and discussing and considering all that has taken place. But in each step of the way, they were finding themselves in a more hopeless situation. And we are going to discover that in each step of this journey to the village of Emmaus, we're going to discover that they contributed to their own downfall in the pit of hopelessness. The very first thing that we see is found in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. The first step is they separated themselves from everyone else. When the disciples were told to stay together, to stay in Jerusalem, to wait for what was about to happen next, these two decided to leave. And in so doing, they isolated themselves. One of the very first steps into a state of hopelessness after a trigger has occurred is when we isolate ourselves from everybody else. When we choose to do so, we put ourselves in a very vulnerable position, as they did, trying to figure things out for themselves. In actuality, moving away from what God was doing to the village of Emmaus. But secondly, notice not only were they moving in the wrong direction, isolating themselves, in verse 14 through 16, we find out that they didn't have the whole picture. And when they were talking with each other about all these things, trying to figure out, discussing amongst themselves that had happened, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. I love that, that he just dropped in. It's kind of cool, huh? Hey guys, what are you talking about? Why are you looking so sad? And Jesus himself drew near with them and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus didn't allow it yet. He kept himself. Somehow, some way, he kept himself from being recognized by these two. And he simply walked with them. See, they didn't have the whole picture, did they? They were working on the limited information that they had, and that was the last moment they saw Jesus, it was on the cross. That's the last picture that they had of him in, his mind, in their mind. Trying to reason this all out, and now the rumors are swelling that the body has gone. And they're trying to grasp all this. They're trying to chew on all of this. They're trying to figure it all out. But in actuality, they're coming to conclusions without all the information. See, that's what happens when we isolate ourselves. We then often try to figure out our circumstances ourselves, and we do so without all the information most of the time, don't we? Have you ever 
found yourself having some symptom that wasn't there the day before. And all day you're chewing on it, like, what does that mean? It's got to be something bad. I used to be able to put my hand all the way up. Now I can't. What's, what's wrong here? My body's not working the way it used to. And all day you're trying to self-diagnose, and then you do what every other rational American does. You go to the Internet. Because the Internet can't be wrong, can it? And you're on WebMD, and you're clicking the buttons trying to describe your symptoms to a computer, and then it comes back out that you have a disease that hasn't existed in 2,000 years. See, we always come to faulty conclusions when we don't have all the information. Often leading ourselves further into that pit of hopelessness rather than rescuing ourselves from it. But in verse 17, we find the third step. Not only did they isolate themselves, they didn't have the whole picture, but now emotions were clouding their thinking. Look at with me in verse 17. And he said to them, this is Jesus, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And that word sad is, it's almost too um, simple. Sullen, downtrodden, depressed. They were in a pit of despair. And then they go on. Well, then one of them named Cleopas answered and said, said to him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And then he said to them, what things? When we isolate ourselves and we act on limited information, often our emotions take over, number three. They were sad, right? Have you ever made a decision under an emotional umbrella that you now regret? Have you said something to someone out of anger and realized the moment it left your mouth that it was the anger speaking and you allowed it to, to go forward? Oh, when you're sad, you say things and you look at the world in a completely different worldview than when you do when you're happy and upbeat. Emotions can be very, very persuasive. And they can lead us and move us into decisions and into a direction. But the question I ask you this evening is this. Is that decision correct? Is that direction right? Or is it simply been guided by your emotions. They were downtrodden. They were saddened by what had taken place. Not only that, they, number four, came to the wrong conclusions based upon their personal perspective. Verse 19. And he said to them, what things? I love that. And they said to him, concerning Jesus... Of Nazareth, a man whom, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. They crucified him. See, based upon their perspective, this is what they saw before them. The last time they saw Christ was on the cross. So all they consider was how he got there. 
being betrayed by Judas, being arrested by the temple guard, being questioned by the religious leaders, Herod and Rome, being asked to suffer the penalty of death as one named Barabbas is being let loose for being a criminal. They came to the conclusion that this is all over. That the last three years that we had with Jesus and the remarkable things that he did and, and those words that he spoke and, the, and the, those who were healed and raised from the dead and those who were fed, it's all over. He was our, he was our liberator. He was the one that was going to see us free. Based upon their conclusions, they felt and perceived that the religious leaders had the upper hand and like prophets that had gone before Christ, he has simply been silenced by them. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But that's the conclusion that they came to based upon their circumstances. Folks, trust me when I say this. I've been saying this for 20 years. Do not allow your circumstances to dictate to you what God is necessarily doing. Okay? Please, listen. If you don't get anything else, listen to that. Too often I've heard, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, when they're being blessed, God must love me. And when difficulties come, God must be mad at me. Don't look at it like that. Because God's love for you has been demonstrated in a way that is etched in history and can never be eroded by time, circumstance, trial, tribulation, or trouble. It can never be moved, the love that he showed you and I. That can never change. They came to the wrong conclusions that it was all over. And in verse 21, the first portion of it, not only that, but they had the wrong expectations. This is the fifth step into our journey into hopelessness. They came with the wrong expectation upon God. Many today feel frustrated with God because they put their faith and hope in Him, but that hope came with baggage. It came with expectations. And they weren't only looking and hoping for him to provide what they need. They were looking and hoping for him to provide what they want. Second thing, don't miss this. God does not promise that he'll provide everything that you want. But he does promise to provide everything you need. It's a big difference. And when we have the proper expectations, we can have an abundance of hope. But if we allow our expectations to weather our hope because we have the wrong expectations, notice with me in verse 21, they said to Jesus, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. It is a phrase meaning to liberate, to set free. And he is talking about the Roman oppression that they are currently under. They were looking to Jesus to raise them as their Messiah back to the zenith of their existence as they enjoyed under King David. But they had the wrong expectations. And that led to hopelessness. That was the fifth step. Look at with me the sixth. And at the end of verse 21... And besides all this, I love that phrase in the Greek. I wish I could do it justice. 
Like everything else that's going on. Like uh, if we didn't have enough to be concerned about. That's what it's saying here. It is now the third day since these things have happened. Meaning three days later and everything is still the way it was. You left too soon. You should have stayed in Jerusalem. The tomb is empty. You took off too soon. The sixth step is this. We often cut out on God too soon. Instead of trusting Him to see us through the whole entire way, we cut out. All right, God, you've had enough. I've given you two hours. You should have settled everything. I'm still in this difficulty, Lord. They cut out too soon. Can you imagine? I, I have to picture that Jesus at this time is like, man, April Fool's, you know. I'm standing right here. Can you imagine the Lord listening to this? Now, in the reality of these six steps, I want you to know something. Who was with them the entire time? Who was with them the entire time? Jesus. You may think you're alone, but God is always with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you, even when you are taking these steps downwards into a place of hopelessness. He is there with you, looking to rescue you from such a place. But those six steps are illustrated for us here in our text. And each step brought them farther from what God wanted and desired from them. And as a conclusion, their hopelessness had created a sadness, a sullenness within them. Hope lost. But the whole time Christ is with them. I say to you this evening that no matter it be alienation, forsaken, uninspired, powerless, oppression, limited, doomed, captivity, or helplessness, the answer to all nine is Jesus Christ. For it is Him and in Him alone that can give us hope. Turn back with me to the portion of Scripture that we read together in chapter 23 at the beginning of our service this evening. I want to take you back to the last thing that these two men saw. Because I don't think that we as Christians today truly appreciate these final moments in the life of Christ. And I want to consider us one of those standing there watching all of this unfold, knowing the hopes and the aspirations that the individuals carried within them concerning Jesus, and then seeing Jesus in this last phase of his life, what conclusion would you draw? It would most likely be the same that they drew. It's all over. It's all over. Hope lost. But I want to explain to you something this evening. I want to explain to you what is happening before your eyes when you read these words, starting in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, it's 12 noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. This is the last three hours of Christ's life. 
It is this moment that we remember on Good Friday each and every year. And to all of those spectators who were watching, some saw a finality, this troublemaker, this rabble-rouser, the one that has stirred the people is finally dead. He is finally taken care of. Others standing there in the crowd whose hopes and aspirations were hung upon his shoulders as their Messiah were now crushed under the weight of this what appeared to be tragic ending. And in the last three hours of Christ's life on the cross, there was this veil of darkness over the entire land. It is this moment of darkness that I want us to consider because it was speaking volumes for those who knew what God was doing. Number one, the darkness spoke of a judgment against the sins of the world. And those sins were on the shoulders of Christ. And that darkness that laid over the earth at that moment indicated to all those who were watching and who would realize and understand the scriptures that judgment was taking place. Throughout the Old and New Testament, darkness always represents judgment. And as the judgment rolled in, the sins of the world were judged on the shoulders of Christ. He was atoning for the sins of each and every one of us. He was paying a price, a penalty that we could never pay. He was paying in our place. As one wrote, he said this, Jesus had suffered the judgment of men. Now he would endure the judgment of God. As Jesus entered into the heart of his suffering, God kept the sun from shining. Christ entered all dimensions of hell while he was on the cross. In the hours of darkness, he bore the guilt, enduring God's wrath, and suffered the taunting of evil. He endured all this alone without the comfort of the Father's presence. That's why he finally cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then the darkness passed, and the storm was over, and the judgment poured out on Christ was exhausted, fully spent. As another one wrote concerning the darkness, it indicated a separation from God. It was at that moment, number two, that God the Father turned his face from the Son. The only moment in, biblical, in the biblical account where the communion between God the Father and the Son was severed. As God could not look upon the sins that had been laid upon the shoulders of Christ, he turned his head and Christ at that moment felt what it, was meant, what it felt like to be alone. As one wrote, in that ultimate moment of his agony, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was if the Father had turned his back on the Son as Jesus bore the sins of humanity. And Jesus declared in three words, It is finished. The provision of redemption was complete. And lastly, in that moment of darkness, before that darkness passed, Christ died. The result of judgment and sin is death. As one wrote at this moment, he said, We must keep in mind that what our Lord accomplished on the cross was an eternal transaction 
that involved him and the Father. He did not die as a martyr or one who failed in, his, in a lost cause, nor was he the only example for people to follow. But he makes it clear that Jesus did not die for his own sins, because he had none. He died for our sins, and he made his soul an offering for our sin. In that moment of darkness, this is what's taken place. And you and I, who are in Christ, have hope because he took what we deserved at that moment. Listen to me again. At that moment, he took for us what we deserved. And if we would place our faith and trust in him for our salvation, we know that we then escape the judgment of the Father that lays upon every human shoulders who is apart from Christ. And that's the last thing I want to say to you this evening. For thus who are in Christ, Christ has done that for us. For you who do not believe, that still is on your shoulders. You're carrying that weight. This is the reality. Number one, that is sin that separates you from God. Number two, that sin will be judged by God. And number three, that sin will lead you to death. One out of one person dies because of sin. That's the reality of our lives. Just recently, I read an article, a poll that was recently done. One out of four Americans now consider themselves an atheist or an agnostic. One who has concluded that there is no God whatsoever and adamantly believes that God does not exist. To the other end of the spectrum where an agnostic would say, I don't know. When asked why they took such a position, they said, we don't know if we can trust the Bible to be true. We don't like what we see within the church. And the world is telling us that these things, the Bible and God, are not real. And we can survive without them. These were the three reasons people gave. Maybe this sums you up today. My question to you then is, where is your hope? What do you place your hope in? Money? Relationships? Government? Your academic science? Yourself? What is it that you place your hope within? Because no one can survive without hope. No one can. It's a reality that we all must embrace. See, the hope is based on something greater than myself. It is based on Christ. And yes, the evidence tells me clearly that it is true, but it is by faith that I embrace that evidence. It is the trust. It is the story of a 16-year-old man, young man, crying out to God and saying, God, if you are real, show yourself, because I'm drowning. And he showed himself. 30 years later, he has continued to show himself as real. Today we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A man who lived 2,000 years ago never traveled 100 miles farther than his, where he was born. Didn't have a website. Didn't have a Facebook page. Never tweeted. And yet we're still remembering him today. We're still talking about it. 
People who come to him, place their faith and trust in him, their lives are being changed still today. And as much as the world wants to drown us out, as much as the world wants to call us intolerant, simple-minded, narrow-minded, antiquated people, the reality still stands that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news continues. And today we remember what he did for mankind. The greatest demonstration of love is found on this day. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's what we remember today. God loves you so much that he gave his son for you, that his son may pay the penalty for a price you could never afford. That's what Christ did for you. If you are hopeless today, look to Christ. He is the one that you can place your hope within. And trust me, he can bear all of your weight. For cast your cares on him, for he cares for you.